Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Booth. Chris Booth is friend of the show. He's one of the few people who's actually hosted this show. He knows what it's like to be in the hot seat. And he's joining us from Canada via Zoom. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MDMPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. All right, I'm back in plenary session with Dr. Chris Booth, professor of medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Dr. Booth is a card-carrying GI and GU oncologist at Global Health Authority and a friend of the show. He's done seminal work, of course, on many topics, but those include progression-free survival and the endpoints of randomized control trials. Dr. Booth, it's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, good afternoon, Benai. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be back. Do you have COVID up there in Canada? A little bit of it. A little bit of it. Not as much as you guys do. It's, uh, it's a cold weather variant, though, but we do have some of it. I see. We're, our goal is to see, see what it does when it, it's allowed to run its course. I think at least some people think that that's, that's one of the goals in this country. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I must admit the Canadians have looked south of the border with much trepidation. And I mean, there was jokes circulating about if there's going to be a wall built, perhaps at one point it should be the northern wall to keep COVID <laughs> out. But in any case, we uh, we look forward to the day when our border is open and we can visit our American friends. I look forward to that day too, Chris. It's been uh, a long year, a long year here south of the border. So um, I wanted to start by talking about a little bit about, you know, how do you view oncology in the time of COVID? I mean, people aren't interested in our work anymore. They're not interested in in the endpoints of clinical studies, um, the the journal market. I I I've been joking, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. You know, right now you it's it's rock bottom. I mean, the number of open slots for non-COVID articles is low. They've accepted a ton of COVID articles, and there's a glut of COVID articles that are seeking a home. So I mean, it's it's not a great time to be a researcher, um, COVID or non-COVID, really. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think, uh, you know, I got involved in some COVID work, uh, you know, over the last six months as well. And I must admit that, you know, our group and others and many people have commented on this, that the quality of the, 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 lab, the methodologic rigor of much of this work is very, very poor. And obviously, mm. that's something I hope we can learn from in, in the coming years. So I agree. I think cancer has been um, certainly publishing cancer research has become more difficult. Um, uh, there's been work, important work done about the implications of COVID and delivering cancer care. But I guess um, in some ways I see what I hope is a silver lining for cancer research, which is I think that COVID in, in all elements of our life, both our personal life and our professional life, I think has allowed people to kind of like focus on what actually really matters and, um, you know, ask some hard questions about, you know, what treatments we actually should be bringing people in for and what ones we shouldn't. And I hope that uh, this serves as a wake-up call that, you know, 
as you know, as oncologists, as scientists, as, as cancer researchers, we kind of have one kick at the can. Right. And maybe COVID will be a, a bit of a wake up call that I, I think, you know, as I joked with, uh, I think it was Aaron Goodman, I joked with when we were talking about another topic, I said, you know, I think my threshold for bullshit has dropped in COVID. And I think I think a lot of other people's has too. And I hope that forces our community to become more accountable with the treatments that we propose and the studies that we design going forward. We really need to become I think, uh, you know, held accountable uh, by society to make sure that we do high impact work. That's well said. I think that's one of the the silver linings is that particularly early on, every decision we were making was um, focusing on the most high yield things we do in oncology and trying to minimize those things we do in oncology that sometimes we do just to go through the motions. So we tried to minimize um, palliative chemotherapy that we thought was beyond what was really in somebody's best interest. We had to minimize visits and blood draws and unnecessary PET scans if we didn't really need it. Um, and that uh, was good. I mean, I think that allowed us to focus. The question will be, of course, when COVID ends, are we going to slip back into our old ways or are we going to take away some lessons and practice high value care? Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, my kind of introductory um COVID experience. This was actually in March. I remember it was over March break. We were supposed to go skiing in Quebec with the kids and that got canceled for, for obvious reasons. And my colleagues, Tim Hanna, who's a radiation oncologist and health services researcher, and Gerald Evans, who's um, a senior infectious disease doc at Queen's, we very quickly wrote a priority setting framework. It was published in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, where we kind of, you know, at a conceptual level, outlined the treatments that if the health system went into real crisis and we had to rank the cancer treatments that we were going to deliver mm -hmm. when the health system was at its breaking point and which treatments could probably be safely or mm -hmm. appropriately deferred, it, it, it led to a, you know, a pretty honest discussion about what matters and what doesn't. Right. And it was, you know, I think quite eye-opening, especially for a non-cancer physician to be involved to see how much of this stuff that we consider standard would we could pretty easily put to the side if a health system was pushed to its limits. Right. And to be honest, the patients probably wouldn't suffer, and ironically, they might be better off. Right. So there was this framework, and I mean, as we wrote it, we kind of joked, you know, this should be a framework that we use all the time. And the stuff that's at the bottom of the priority list in the middle of a health system crisis, uh, you know, we should probably ask ourselves, should we ever be giving it? And so I think that's kind of a, you know, an example of going forward. I do worry that we'll slip back in, into our old ways. I guess one thing I, I think that has not been um, really discussed is, you know, the, the serious economic reckoning that's going to come uh, in the healthcare system in yeah. the coming decade as we struggle to pay for the economic implications of COVID. Right. And, you know, I'm not an economist by any means, but there are going to be massive, massive pressures in all elements of the education system, the healthcare system, um, as we begin to service the debt that was required to sustain economies through COVID. And, and I do wonder if this incredible um, budget pressure is actually going to force healthcare systems to finally uh, take value-based care very seriously. Yeah, I think that is a good way to, to think about it. Um, probably the way different nations react will be very different. Uh, in our nation, I worry that one of the immediate consequences is that people are looking at the red that they suffered suffered in first quarter of 2020, and they want to make that black. And so what they're going to do is ramp up the marginal testing, downstream interventions, the low-value surgeries. I'm worried they're going to do that. But the other thing I wanted to mention to you that I thought maybe you'll find funny is that... Um, you know, a number of these publications on COVID-19, you know, I, I respect the groups for doing them, 
I guess, but I don't think they tell us very anything remarkable. I mean, so a number of things are like risk factors for cancer patients with COVID-19, and they were kind of what you'd expect, being older, having progressive disease, being receiving the need to receive active drugs. You know, that's not so good if you also get COVID-19. And being in remission, being younger, being cured of your disease, that's better. And so I thought to myself that, you know, I guess it's laudable to verify those things. On the other hand, there's a number of publications that are all saying the same thing, and they're not saying anything that's particularly surprising to a doctor. Um, and yet, of course, you know, the journals had an appetite for that very briefly. I think now that appetite is gone. But I don't know. Any thoughts on these kinds of publications? No, I agree. And I mean, I think, you know, we probably cut everyone some slack in the first few months when there was a lot of fear and uncertainty. I mm -hmm. think that, you know, one could potentially uh, – consider doing COVID type work for the next five, 10, 20 years. And when anyone approaches me now about doing some kind of retrospective cohort study about patterns of care and outcomes, I must admit my, my gut instinct is first of all, I think we're all going to be tired of COVID and hopefully in a couple of years, it'll just be a distant memory. Right. But I also think it's time to move on. I mean, at some point COVID will disappear and we're still going to be left with the pressing public health issues that we've always had. And, and maybe we can use some of the lessons we've learned from COVID to, to make a real contributions to uh, reducing some of those public health problems. That's well, that's well said. That's why you're always the diplomat, Chris Booth, the diplomat. Uh, okay, let's talk about your new paper. It's coming out this week in JAM Oncology. This is a really interesting article, a comparison of randomized controlled trials over, I think, a three-year period of time. And there's thousands, what, 2,500 randomized controlled trials. Booth, you know how to work the trainees. You work them real hard, make them read all these studies. Um, and I guess I'd say that you're comparing randomized controlled trials that are run both run in high-income countries or who have corresponding authors in high-income countries to randomized control trials run in low or middle-income countries and those with corresponding authors in low middle-income countries. And there's just so many interesting things that that shake out um, from the type of endpoint, how often they're positive, how often they meet ESMO meaningful benefit criteria, where they're published, whether or not there's some bias there. I wonder where do you want to jump in on this? What do you want to where do you want to start? On? Yeah, let, let me. Um, yeah. So I'll maybe I'll talk with the, the genesis because sometimes yeah, I think that's always the good. Interesting parts of projects where do these come from? So so this this project originated uh, over a cup of tea uh, in Mumbai, followed by <laughs> probably gin and tonic with uh, <laughs> my dear friends uh, Professor Pramesh from the Tata Memorial Hospital and Richard Sullivan from King's College London. And the three of us work very closely in uh, in the Indian context and also more broadly in global oncology. And the discussion was that uh, the mainstream cancer research ecosystem appears to have lost touch with with reality. And and reality by we we mean by that both what what matters to patients in high income countries, but also what happens in the rest of the world outside Western Europe, um, North America, and a handful of other very wealthy. Countries. And so we asked ourselves, is there a way that we could undertake a study to explore the extent to which randomized control trials are being done globally? How do they align with the burden of cancer? And is there a way to illustrate um, perhaps important differences between studies run in rich countries versus low resource settings and how we might learn from each other? So that was kind of the genesis of it. And then we put together this, this team, kind of a diverse uh, backgrounds, different disciplines from different parts of the world. 
And we said, well, let's do an overview of all systemic, uh, sorry, all cancer randomized trials published over three years. Mm -hmm. uh, we looked at only anti-cancer therapy. So it was really systemic therapy, radiotherapy, and surgery. Anything that was related to prevention or supportive care, we did not include. Because the numbers, you know, the initial literature search was in the thousands. And we ended up um, with, with 694 published randomized trials. And mm -hmm. we, we did not restrict it to high-impact journals because we wanted to find everything. Um, and the, uh, so we had a number of questions we were asking. First is, you know, how, did, how does the design of trials differ across settings? Um, what, what can we learn broadly from the global RCT ecosystem? Right. How do the results vary between um, different economic settings? And then what, what is the output? Where do these things go? How are they published? And how are they implemented into practice? So that right. was kind of the, the backstory. Um, as far as kind of some of the key findings, so not surprisingly, um, the vast majority of randomized trials was 92% originate from high income countries. Um, they tend to study systemic therapy. So actually only 13% of RCTs are testing novel approaches to radiotherapy or surgery. Interesting. And actually, if you drill down even further um, and look at what types of systemic therapy, 60%, so basically two thirds of every clinical trial in the world is testing systemic therapy in the palliative context. And mm. so as far as relieving human suffering and improving um, you know, outcomes of cancer, there's probably a, a disconnect there um, between how, what we're aiming and, and uh, what we're actually studying. The, um, uh, I guess some of the other kind of relevant you know, high level findings was that the proportion of randomized trials across different cancers did not match the global burden of cancer. So uh, not surprisingly, breast cancer was far overrepresented in randomized trials. Interesting. Uh, when yeah. you look at the proportion of global deaths due to breast cancer and the proportion of randomized trials. Um, and then we saw the converse for um, diseases of, you know, cancers of poverty, cervical cancer, liver cancer, gastroesophageal cancer, and even pancreas cancer were far underrepresented when it came to, to global RCTs. So those were some of the initial kind of big picture findings from the, the overall global trials portfolio. Yeah, those are so many interesting things. Yeah, I noted that um, a number of malignancies were underrepresented, pancreas, GI, what is it? Esophagus was underrepresented. Yeah. I mean, cervix. cervix. Ironically, those are diseases that, of course, disproportionately affect low and middle income nations and maybe less to a some degree, lesser degree in, in high income nations. Um, the other interesting thing that jumped out at me was, you know, you point out that the trials that are run in low and middle income nations often have an author that's from a high income nation, right? So there's only a tiny fraction that are run by people in low middle income nations. The, the classic is multinational randomized trial that has a US centric author, and they're recruiting in some low and middle income countries. You want to talk about that a second? I mean, I thought it was something like 40% of the accrual was in a low and middle income country, but only 13% of the authors were from that. Yeah, it's a great point. So, so let me... Um... Let's get to that. Why don't I tell okay. you, uh, we'll go over with some of, some of the highlights of what we found, the differences between trials that were led by authors sure. in high-income countries versus uh, those from LMICs. So first of all, who's funding this? Yes. Okay, yes. so we found that 70% of all RCTs in cancer are funded by industry. And this varies based on where the trial's coming from. So in high-income countries, 73% are funded by industry, whereas only 41% of studies from LMICs are funded by industry. What do the trials look like? Um, again, 
some of these things weren't surprising, but it's good to have data to back it up. Trials uh, in high income countries are powered to detect smaller differences. The sample size is more than twofold larger. Wow. Um, uh, having said that, they are less likely to be positive. So, uh, in, you know, about, about 67% of RCTs and LMICs actually met their primary endpoint, and 45% of RCTs in high income countries met their primary endpoint. Moreover, when you look at the effect size, the magnitude of benefit of these positive trials, the hazard ratio in LMICs was far larger. So the hazard ratio was, you know, the median hazard ratio was 0.62 for positive trials in LMICs and 0.84 in positive trials from HICs. That's a pretty substantial difference. So the effect size varied considerably. I want to get into the impact factor issue and some of the the kind of bigger, broader policy issues in a moment. Sure. But I guess as far as endpoints, only um, 31% of all clinical trials uh, have overall survival as the primary endpoint. So we're now chasing surrogate endpoints, or I should actually rephrase that. As Elizabeth Eisenhower recently corrected me, we should use the term putative surrogate endpoints. Oh, because they're not proven always. That's a good correct, point. Correct. So I think that's a really good point. We've kind of, our language has given, uh, you know, has artificially elevated these putative surrogate endpoints. But anyhow, that's so a about a, a third, a third are progression-free survival and about a quarter are DFS, EFS, relapse-free survival. Um, so those are some of the kind of the, the bigger, the bigger findings. Uh, I guess, um, well, when I pause there, because there's kind of some, some things we can unpack and talk about, but then we're going to get to the issue about where these things are published and the idea about what you talked about, which I, I call research parachutism. But, okay. but it, oh, that's a good that's a good word for it. Okay. So, I mean, what you're saying is that there's an explosion of clinical trials. They're almost all systemic drugs. They're almost all, I mean, a lot of them are industry funded um, and they're chasing surrogate endpoints. Um, and I think one of the, some of the interesting things you're pointing out are yeah, we really don't we, we we don't test as radiotherapy as much as we ought to as the investigational agent. Of course, if there's a radiotherapy trial, both arms have radiotherapy. No, just just kidding, just kidding. They they do some randomized trials, but um, but we're not asking the tough questions for radiotherapy, for surgery, and for adjuvant therapy. That's one of the points you made. Um, and your and and I guess your argument would be that if you really want to make a dent in global cancer outcomes, um, as 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 much as we love drugs used in non curative settings they tend to have median survivals on the order of, you know, two, three months. Um, if we were to test better ways to cure people with radiotherapy, surgery, or adjuvant chemotherapy, or adjuvant therapy, um, we might make a bigger dent. Uh, is that part of your argument? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as, you know, medical oncologists and, you know, cancer physicians, we have to have some humility and recognize that, you know, it, it, Chemotherapy plays a really important role and increases long-term survival and cure rates in an important way for many cancers. It improves um, outcomes in the palliative context for some cancers in a very, very substantial way. But at the end of the day, most chemotherapy, at least in solid tumors, does not cure the cancer. What, what provides cure for our patients is radiotherapy or surgery. And we've neglected those when it comes to the global research ecosystem. And I think if we want to make a, a, a big dent in, um, in global mortality, we need to reconsider and recalibrate how we allocate resources across the research space. Now, one of the challenges, of course, is that the funding now is dominated by the pharmaceutical industry. So I'm sure our surgical colleagues would like to complete trials, but without access to funding, it makes it that much more difficult. Fascinating. Um, and I think that's that's right. Um, okay, why don't why don't we get into the the research parachutism? 
get into the the where people are who get the credit and where people are who are enrolling the patients issue. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is really interesting, actually really important. So, I mean, just to drive home the one of the key points from some of the data we've just talked about that you know, we can learn a lot from our colleagues leading trials in LMICs. They are, they don't, you know, they don't have the luxury of designing frivolous trials to detect improvements in survival of a few days or a few That's weeks. Right. They, they are faced with, you know, massive clinical workloads, incredible resource constraints, and just huge infrastructure hurdles that we could never conceptualize. So when they design a clinical trial, they want to make sure it's impactful. So they're designing smaller, more efficient RCTs that are powered to detect larger benefits. And I think that we should learn. And this is part of the, you know, the bi-directional learning of global health, right? Traditionally, it only flowed in one direction. At least right. that was the mantra in global health. And we can actually, I think we need to correct some of our mistakes and learn from our colleagues that are designing these important trials in LMICs. There's, there's obviously a shared partnership there. And we'll maybe touch on that in a moment. But I think one of the really important take-home policy messages yes. is where these papers end up being published. And so let's talk about a couple complicated issues. I guess one is the concept of what, what I call research parachutism. And this is, you've alluded to this many times when you dissect a multinational clinical trial in which uh, treatments are given in low resource settings where standard of care or access to testing and imaging mm -hmm. might be very different uh, than it is in the United States, Canada, or in Europe. And so the idea of conducting a clinical trial in a country in which you are not planning to really offer that treatment, if it's successful, is problematic for two reasons. It's problematic because if the trial is being delivered in a context where standard of care does not match Yes. the standard of care and the environment in which you wish to roll out that treatment, then the patients who are being offered this treatment in the United States and Sweden and Canada and the UK, they're suffering because they're being offered treatments based on data that does not actually apply to them. And on the converse, we're also, I, I think it's totally inappropriate to be doing clinical trials uh, in countries that have limited resource and offering these expensive, um, toxic, unproven therapies with no hope that the patients and uh, future patients in those systems will ever have access to that. And that's right. what I call research parachutism, right. which is going in and, um, you know, it's the traditional colonial model of global health, going in, taking data and leaving. And the, the society and the patients in which uh, the research was done don't necessarily benefit. And so I think that's an unspoken problem that still exists in, in global oncology and global health. I think there's movements towards um, mitigating that, but I think it's something that needs to be out in the open. And, I, you know, we'll talk about now the impact factor prejudice. And I think this is one of the reasons that uh, the editors at JAM Oncology, they recognize there is a major problem. And, I, you know, I have to applaud them for, for publishing this paper because it makes the um, medical uh, research ecosystem and the journals, it, it doesn't make us look very good. Right. And so just to get to that, so where do these things end up? So we used impact factor as a very crude marker of the, the profile that was given to these clinical trials. And we found a huge um, discordance in impact factor. So the median impact factor for a randomized trial from a high income country is 21. So that, that's pretty high. Right. You and I occasionally publish in journals with impact factors of 21. <laughs> But but we've been in journals with impact factors at 2.1 before as well. 2.1 is my home. That's my home. <laughs> so, so impact factors are 21 for high-income countries and 7 mm. for LMICs, okay? And these are RCTs that have yes. been done yeah. in very, very challenging circumstances, and they're addressing really important topics. So, so there's um, 
there is one important finding. However, you could say, well, what what drives the um, you know impact factor? Well, there's the publication bias with positive trials being more likely to be in high impact journals. So when we stratified for that and we looked at positive clinical trials, we saw it actually gets even bigger. So a positive RCT from a high income country published in journals with an impact factor of 25. For LMICs, the impact factor was nine. And for negative clinical trials, um, again, we see HICs published uh, impact factor 18, LMICs published an impact factor of five. So the real kicker is that positive clinical trials from LMICs are still published in journals well, well, well below negative trials in HICs. So uh, th I think this is a, a publication prejudice problem that needs to be recognized. It's probably complicated. There's a number of factors driving that, but I think just by putting some data to it and drawing attention to it, I think it might hold the medical research community perhaps accountable to consider how this can be mitigated going forward. Uh, so many interesting things there. I guess um, I guess I first want to talk about the first part. What you were saying was um, some of these trials. I mean, you know, I, they really they really like a pebble in my shoe. They they bother me, and they bother me in the sense that they are multinational studies that are really run with the perp with one or two purposes in mind. One purpose: getting U.S. FDA approval because we're willing to pay any amount of money for the drugs, and we pay the most money, and so they want to get our approval in our country, and then they want to get you know Canada. Although you all are tougher because they can get approval in Health Canada, but they can't get coverage in every province unless they're willing to play ball. But they're happy to play ball with you, you know, give you guys some concession, in part because if they get your oncologist giving their drugs, it's better sell to get everyone, you know, all the players from Western industrialized nations giving the same drugs so that we can say this is the standard of care. The same thing in Europe. They want EMA approval, but not as bad as FDA because they're probably not making as much cumulative revenue there. And then they got to play the game country by country approval. So then they run this trial and... They run it in a global setting. They're accruing, as you point out, something like 40% of patients on these trials. Um, the control arm is often something that we wouldn't give in Canada or the U.S. or Great Britain. Um, we wouldn't feel comfortable giving that control arm. It's not our typical standard of care. Um, or after the patients progress, they don't get standard of care like we would give. They don't get second-line therapies. They don't have options to um, have let's say you're moving a checkpoint inhibitor up, the control arm is previously getting a checkpoint inhibitor second line. They're not giving it in this trial because it's run globally. Um, such a trial, the irony is twofold. One, it doesn't help people in those countries because they know damn well when the trial is positive, they're going to price the drug so high, it is essentially unaffordable to anyone in that country. So all the people in the community there, they will never have a path to these drugs because they can never afford these drugs. In fact, proof of that is, the control arm is already not what we're doing in Western industrialized nations. It's often one step, two steps, three steps behind because they can't even afford those drugs, let alone the novel drug. The next thing is it doesn't help people in the U.S. or Canada or Great Britain because it's telling us the new drug is better than something we're not even doing anyway or the new drug is good when you don't have post-protocol care. So I feel like it's this great double exploitation. It's exploiting the people in those countries directly because they're not going to get access. And it's exploiting the financial system of our country, really. It's exploiting the taxpayer wealth because it's paying for a lot of lucrative products that we don't really know add health. It's really exploiting two worlds, ironically, um, and yet it's omnipresent. It is. And, and I think... Um 
I mean, I think we as, uh, you know, as researchers, but also as practicing oncologists, our community, I think, needs to hold these trials accountable. And mm -hmm. I think talking about these issues, writing about them, I mean, I think m most, most people in, in the research world, in the clinical world, they, they want to do the right thing. Right. And I think right. somehow we've abdicated that responsibility to another entity. And I think we need to take that back. And I think by talking about it is, you know, the, probably the first step. Yeah. And I think... Uh, so I, I I think that that's that's one important theme that you know of course you and I are going to agree on. We've talked about it a lot before. The second thing that I think worth talking a little bit about is, you know, you put it really nicely that people in low and middle income countries, clinicians, they're very busy. For them to do the trial without the pharmaceutical industry support, they're gonna want to pick a study that is really impactful, and you see that in all the metrics. Um, there may be some publication bias, but the studies in low and middle income countries are more likely to be uh, positive. Um, that's tainted by maybe there's some studies that you don't see at all because they're the bottom right. of the iceberg. Yeah. The next thing is, though, when they are positive, they're more likely to meet higher thresholds on ESMO. And you looked at the power calculation, so they're more likely to be powered for bigger deltas. Um, that's in part resource constraints because they can't just randomize 10,000 people looking for, you know, a point two day difference in DFS like we like to do. Um, so they have to really ask meaningful benefits, but that, as you point out nicely, we can learn from that. Our, some of our trials are overpowered, power defined, statistically significant, but clinically meaningless differences. Um, and you know, I, I think about that recent study, um, from Tata about women who have metastatic breast cancer, whether or not we should still remove um, the local mass in the breast in the breast in case they were diagnosed with you know de novo metastatic, and this is something that there have been so many patients in retrospective observational studies from the U.S. the U.K. where we look to see does breast removal in metastatic disease improve outcomes, and those retrospective studies are generally favorable that they does improve outcomes. Of course, there's the bias that if the patient is really sick, you're not going to refer them to surgery, and if they're less sick, you are. So it could be the the sort of the sort of confounding by indication and not the the surgery itself. And in fact, when they did it in Tata and they randomized people, that's what they found. They find no benefit from doing this. But that is a hugely impactful study um, that was run um, in a low and middle income country and published actually one of the few ones that was published in a really good journal. Um, and and your point is that there are many such studies um, and that the entire process of review. Um, it's so easy for reviewers to say this is a study from India or from China and denigrate it and not think highly of it. Um, but what you're and you're pointing out that translates directly into the average impact factor of these trials, seven verse twenty one. Um, I think you're making a very interesting case for equity and how we think of each other as researchers. Yeah, I think it's just something that uh, you know. I'm sure our our, our colleagues and investigators now in LMICs have been aware of this for years, and right. I think that um, you know to have some data to at least advocate for change and you know drawing awareness to this is going to be the way forward because I think that we have much more to gain and learn from our colleagues who have been forced to be creative in the way they deliver care. Their models of care are different. And I think that um, there's a lot that we can learn from low resource settings and by not giving their research the profile or the platform it deserves, uh, it, you know, it, it's hurting all of us. And so I think there's, there's a lot that, that uh, on the upside of, of, you know, fixing this, this apparent problem. So it's a fascinating paper. I mean, if we could step back and look at it, and you have a number of policy suggestions at the end. But I think, um, I don't know, 
you know, I, I guess I want to make a plug for what you're doing. Like, um, you know, you're looking at the landscape of published randomized control trials from high impact, from high income and low and middle income nations. Um, you learn a lot from a good descriptive study. I think sometimes you learn a lot more than you learn when you pretend you did causality and you didn't really do causality, which is really sort of the, the sine qua non of being a modern researcher is to say, I have found a new causal observation, here it is. Um, and I actually am never drawn to that kind of research. In fact, you'll, you're one of the few people who will recognize I almost never do that kind of causal research because I'm not smart enough to find causes and effects that people haven't found. But um, I like the kind of research you did because it's really just looking from a mountaintop at what we see. And you see so much already. You see, I think, sort of unfairness in how likely publications are refereed. Um, you also see different places setting different agendas. And I think you also see, I think, the heavy hand of the for-profit industry, which leaves its, the biggest impression of the hand is left in the high-income nations. Um, but it affects all, the whole world. Um, but the, the corresponding authors, of course, a high-income nation corresponding author. Um, so I wonder if you might talk about, I don't know, your policy recommendations or what it's like to do such a very large, I mean, obviously, a lot of work. I mean, you read thousands yeah, of articles. So yeah, so thanks, Kunai. Yeah, a couple of kind of comments in response to that. Um, I mean, the first thing is, I guess, just to acknowledge the research team. So, you know, this idea, you know, gen was generated uh, in Mumbai years ago, but a lot of the heavy lifting was done by an internal medicine resident, Connor Wells at Queens, who is moving to Vancouver to do a medical oncology uh, fellowship at the BC Cancer Agency um, uh. next year. Uh, him and uh, Shubham Sharma, Shubham is a medical student at Queen's, reviewed all the trials. Um, uh, Joey Del Paggio was involved, helping with the ESMO scoring and some of the quality checking. And then we had a whole team of kind of content experts, Wilma Hopman, our biostatistical wizard, uh, Nazi Kamad and uh, Vishal Gawali from Queen's, Ajay and uh, Ajay Agarwal and Richard Sullivan from King's College London, Debbie Murkajee from American University of Beirut in Lebanon. Um, and so there was, it was quite, it was actually quite a fun group to work with. We've got a number of kind of secondary papers coming from this, because as you alluded to, these are big, big projects with a huge amount of data that can provide these high level, um, insights. And I think, you know, I've done several of these projects now. I, my first one was the original evolution of the yeah, randomized um, and so I guess just to give your listeners a sneak preview, as you well know, as, as a co-author, we have the third iteration of the evolution of the randomized trial in the works right now. And hopefully we'll see that in publication soon with some very provocative findings. Um, but, you know, some of these projects, uh, as I'd like to joke, these are like grade eight science level projects, right? The science here is actually fairly simple, right? You read the methods, people can understand it. You don't need complex methodology and fancy statistics to get important findings from this type of research. And I think it does give us an idea, you know, where we come from and where are we going and how can we maybe alter the direction of the ship? And so I, I enjoy doing these, you know, high level overviews, but it certainly takes a lot of work. So I did want to acknowledge, especially Connor and Shibham for, for all of their work. So as far as policy implications, I guess the first thing is just to kind of recognize that there's this funding paradox that um, if we really want to alleviate global suffering, we need to think about ways to fund cancer research that does not suit the agenda of the pharmaceutical industry. We need to think about how to fund research for radiotherapy and surgery. And most importantly, we need probably philanthropic organizations and governments to step up and fund impactful research, both in HICs, but most importantly, in LMICs. 
Um, I think that, uh, you know, I have a privilege of teaching every year's faculty at the Credo Methodologic Workshop run by uh, Dr. Priya um, Ranganathan from Tata Memorial Hospital. And this is, I think, one of the jewels of the National Cancer Grid. It's a week long, very intensive research methodology program. And this is something that is going to change the way that research is done in LMICs. This is starting in India, but they're starting to build very rich South-South partnerships with colleagues in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I wouldn't be surprised in a few years if we begin to see similar courses. This is kind of like the Vail and Flims um, courses of uh, of the LMIC context. And it's a, you know, a, a really remarkable program. So I think there are there is infrastructure barriers. There are barriers in clinical workload that prevent clinical research. There's funding. There's there's barriers in training too. The the at least in the Indian cancer system, it's starting to change. But much of the clinical training is focused on looking after patients, and so mm. learning critical appraisal, research methodology. This is now starting to uh, to move in the right direction. But there's certainly um, room for improvement there, and perhaps that's where there can be natural partnerships between centers that have some of the methodologic training, but we can also so learn about some of the you know innovative approaches to models of care that uh, are used in these very busy um, low resource settings. I guess kind of you know the final issues relate to this publication prejudice, and I think you know I think Jam Oncology by publishing this is going to draw attention to it. I think editorial boards and editors can perhaps consider how they might handle pieces coming from LMICs. Um, we haven't done this yet, but I have an idea with a fellow to take a look at, you know, the composition of editorial boards and are they representing the global um, population? And perhaps that's one way of beginning to, to shift the needle. And uh, I guess just to kind of emphasize that, you know, the, the, this, this, the, the true joy of kind of global health and global oncology are these very rich friendships and collaborative partnerships and the bi-directional learning. There's actually a lot that we can learn from each other, and it's actually a lot of fun. And so just by doing this type of work, you know, we hope to kind of inspire future collaborations that can help move things forward for cancer patients uh, globally. Well, that's hard to top. Uh, you, you hit so many excellent points, uh, Dr. Booth. So many excellent points. Um, Okay, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I mean, I think you really did a nice job of taking us through all the different things that would make one think about. Um, I, I really like this this uh, workshop you run in India. Um, the the uh, the credo uh, is that right? Credo is the type. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I and I think that's the right that's the right model. And and I think you you point out nicely how there are lessons that can be learned. I think bidirectionally in this research. Okay, since I have you, I'm going to ask you a different question because sure. we can come back to this in a second, but it's hard to get a hold of you, Dr. Booth. You've dodged me for months. Okay, so I stole something you told me. I stole it and I wrote it down and I put it in something I'm trying to publish any day now, so maybe it'll be out by the time this is here. And it was, because it's just such a gem, but it was... You know, we were talking about something. I don't know. I think we're talking about something like, some, uh, you know, a theme that I've been interested in, which is like, how do you make the most of the time you have? And we all acknowledge we don't have infinite time. When you're young, you think you do. And that's a mistake in life. I wish I could go back in time. You don't. You really have to choose. And the challenge isn't keeping yourself busy as you get older. The challenge is finding a way to not be so damn busy. There's always going to be something you could work on. Um, but as you, I think, go along, you realize that, 
you know, a lot of what you do, you feel like you didn't really connect with anybody. I mean, you, you, you sang a song and no one heard it. You know, you played a piano tune and no one was there to listen. Um, that, or, or, or it was something that somebody else did a little bit better or was duplicative or redundant. Um, but sometimes you do feel like, boy, you know, that struck a chord. That really did something. Um, anyway, so I was telling you about this and then you wrote back to me, a few other people, and you said that every few years what you do is you take your CV and you, you get a copy in your hand and you get a bunch of highlighters and you highlight everything three colors. Okay, green. Green, this was impactful. This was something that if it weren't for Chris Booth doing this, like it wouldn't have been done. And, you know, people wouldn't be talking about it. People wouldn't be doing this or that downstream of it. Yellow. This was definitely supportive work. Like it definitely helped this field think more clearly about X, Y, or Z. Like we we helped. Like we were a part of the team. Um, yellow. Red. This wasn't really impactful. Like we did a good job. We didn't screw anything up. We're not coming up with a fairy tale or anything. We're not photoshopping Western blots, which is in you know. I hear it's in vote. I don't know. We you and I never we never we don't know what a Western blot. Is. We don't know. We never work on that stuff. <laughs> um, but um, you know, but but it didn't really resonate. And then you told me that you actually. I mean, I thought it was such a. I mean, it was such a great exercise. We should. I mean, we should do something like that. Um, and I'm going to give you the, the microphone in a second. So, um, so like you should obviously focus on the green and and let, do less red. And I was telling, and and I had like been doing something similar, but I hadn't really ex- like articulated it. And my thing was, I put things in buckets, like thematic buckets, like we work on surrogate endpoints, low value medical practices, cancer drug, drug pricing, and financial conflict of interest. And I don't think I actually told you this, but a couple, like a year and a half, like maybe six months ago, a year, or when I was leaving Oregon. Um, I, I looked at those buckets and I really felt like, and you know, you're going to ki- you're going to kill me because I know you and I still work on some projects in this vein, but I personally have not done like, I haven't taken the lead on these projects, but the financial conflict of interest is the bucket that, that struck a chord with me in the sense that I felt like we've been wor- we like, we have been hitting this issue so like nicely and the papers that hopefully you and I get out soon, you know, they hit it super nicely. Like they show things that you didn't think about or you didn't consider, um, but the problem I struggle with in that field is that like nothing will change these people's minds. Nothing will change their mind. They're so just wedded to w- what they're doing and I don't know what to say. Like I, if I can prove that it's bad and that it's prevalent and it does this and that we're being paid, you know, pittance for what we're doing for the field and like, but they don't change their mind, Chris. And so I got so frustrated. I was like, okay, we're done. Like whatever, pro- we're no more projects on financial conflict until we can regroup and like, you know, build a- and something new. Like, I don't know, think of something. But but then, you know, you came to me with like three awesome ideas and obviously I got roped in. But um, <laughs> so, but it's not to say it's not important. I mean, I still think it's important. I just, you know. Okay, anyway. So I wonder if you'll talk about this. Like this is really important for trainees. How do you think about where your time is spent? Do you get frustrated um, do you redirect energies? I mean, you've had more years in this field and you've made some pivots. I wonder if you talk about that. Yeah, those are great points. And I, um, so I, I can't remember exactly which mentor it was, but one of my mentors sent me, um, it's probably Dr. Tannock, uh, but sent me a piece by David Sackett. And I think I've sent it to you. I've sent it to kind of people that I work closely with and people that I mentor. It, the paper is called um, The Determinants of Success for a Clinician Investigator, Clinician Scientist. Um, and it might be worth, you know, sending out in your social media for junior trainees to read. And one of the things that Dr. Sackett recommended was up peri- doing this periodic priority list. And so I had that in the back of my mind. And um, I guess it was about four or five years ago, I was on a long flight home from India, actually. 
And I was faced with this kind of career decision. Um, and this led to the pivot, which I think you're alluding to, which is I had a really, really busy population-based outcomes program focusing on quality of care disparities and outcome in Ontario. And, and it was really, really hopping. It was a big, dynamic, exciting program with a lot of output and took a lot of energy and time and effort, and, and which was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. But I also had this growing um, program in collaborative work with colleagues in India. And in the backstory, I always had this interest in, you know, clinical trial endpoints and cancer policy and magnitude of benefit and things. And I was actually, you know, I had four young kids at the time um, and I was struggling to balance it all. And I was feeling like I had to make some decisions about what was going to be the most impactful uh, in my field and also what was going to be the most rewarding and gratifying for me. And that's where I did the highlighting exercise. And it, it's funny that, that you've taken to this because it's, I guess it's a similar, perhaps it's a slightly uh, more artistic version than your buckets, right? So I color coded things and I went through my CV. I just used published papers as a metric for mm -hmm. things. You could be right. anything. It could, it could be, be anything. Project, whatever. Right. And, you know, I, I was, uh, I must admit there was more red on that list than I wanted. And as you said, there's nothing wrong with the red because we learn things in doing it. Often it was to help a trainee who needed a project or it was something that, you know, I learned a new methodology, but there was, there was more red there than I wanted. And I wanted to really focus on things that I thought would be yellow and green. And so I, I looked at, you know, what, what was the, the nature of the red projects and it became pretty apparent where I could make a bigger impact and, and, and contribution. And so that was really insightful at helping me to align my interests and my time. And actually that led to this, you know, pretty big career decision. I had a full-time analyst doing the population-based work really? in Ontario. Mm -hmm. We were having probably about 30 papers a year from this wow. uh, very rich database um, of linked uh, treatment records, registries, you know, kind of similar to a SEER Medicare type program, but we had all the pathology reports too. But it was an overwhelming, it's like a fire hose of data. And I decided to turn the hose down. So I dropped down to a 0.5 analyst um, and that created a huge amount of uh, space to think and to do uh, things in other fields. And so, and then eventually I've kind of, you know, now I don't have my own analyst doing that. I, I, I work in kind of a senior capacity where I have junior faculty who have their own analysts and I, I help and mentor them and work with them. So I still continue to do this and I enjoy it, but it's allowed me to kind of go back to some of this magnitude of benefit, clinical trial endpoint work, but also really ramp up the global cancer policy work. And I actually updated the uh, the highlighting exercise, I guess, in the last few months, maybe it was actually our conversation that triggered the memory. And I was pleased to see, actually, there, there's a bit more yellow and green than there was. Uh, there's oh, still really? some red there, but I mean, okay. I can always you know, buy some red, but it's actually made a difference. Um, so it's it's not level one evidence. It's not a randomized intervention, <laughs> but uh, so I don't know if it's but But the color coding has changed. And at least I kind of have a sense that, um, you know, where my time's going and, 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 and where I can make the, the, the big, what I think is the biggest impact. It's so interesting to me. I mean, when you say it that way, I guess, um, I, 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 I definitely, um, like agree with everything you're saying. And I guess the only other, the like additional things that come to my mind is, um, I don't know. I'm sometimes trying to, I was trying to like pick my own brain and I was like, why am I drawn to certain topics and not other topics? Like, what is it that draws me in? And I guess I like that. I guess I must say it's like, I would call it like rationality failures. It's like the places in medicine where like otherwise reasonable people are saying things that aren't reasonable. And like those include like, oh, this new study that has like clear methodologic flaws, flaws like should be the reason why we prescribe everyone a $12,000 a month medicine. 
you know, like you and I wrote, co-wrote that stuff on polo trial. Like, okay, that strikes me as a rationality failure because we're like, okay, the people who say this, they're very smart people. They went to good schools. Like they're not, they're not fooling anybody, but they're saying something that's like clearly like doesn't make any sense at all. And hopefully someday, God willing, we get the profound trial out there. Oh, by the way, this is a bone yeah. to pick with you. Right, now I can pick it in front of the listeners. Booth is always tells me, you listeners, listen here. You know, we do these discussions of journal clubs, and Chris always makes the point that, and it's, you know, Chris is right, that as good as podcasting is and as good as Twitter is, it has a short half-life. It's ephemeral. It's doomed. It's not going to last forever. You need to write it in a way that it is indexed and it's forever accessible. So somebody looking at this trial 10 years from now will know that there were these caveats and limitations, or at least somebody said it. Um, anyway, I agree with Chris, and I tried to do it. Um, um, but, you know, it's not easy to publish. And I know, <laughs> I know, I know. We have this beautiful paper, and it's been turfed everywhere. I know, I know. It's uh, We need just a Prasad and Booth journal, and maybe we'll just kind of put it in long format on your Twitter feed. But, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I think it's really important that these monologues and these critiques that you and others do are written down and become part of the scientific record. And I hope, you know, I would imagine that there's some forward-thinking journal editor out there that would be interested in this. And might, maybe there's a partnership that uh, you could make, but I, I think that's really important. But you're right. We've got one that I think we're both, you know, banging our head against the wall that's been kicking around for a while that really needs a home. And these are important things. Um, I guess the other comments I'll make in response yeah. is your decision to give up work and financial conflict of interest. I can tell you there's like a massive party at the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> You're like, we won. Prasad back yeah. down. That's good. And, and the other thing is the reason why I think you're drawn to all these topics and projects is, you know, I describe you as you're the philosopher oncologist, uh, right? It's uh, your philosophy uh, training. And um, maybe I'm the interpretive dance oncologist. I don't know. But anyhow, <laughs> anyhow so are the karaoke oncologist. But well, uh, that's kind of yeah. you, but that's that's not the description I hear. I read online. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, by the way, I, I tweeted out something like, is there any journal that will host these, like, you know, pair podcasts, like critiques of articles? And, um, and I don't know, it led to a bunch of discussions, but one of them, like one of the journals wanted us to like pay like a couple thousand dollars for every one of these, like they're killing me. I mean, like, you know, I, I mean, there's no grant that's going to give you money to be critical of a for-profit study, yeah, you know, yeah. like it's not very fundable for, for the open source fees, you know, what it is, what it is. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I guess I'm drawn to those things. Um, I mean, I think what you're saying is like super important, um, in the sense that, you know, you want your work to be impactful. And I think a mistake people run is that they just want the work to be the thing to get them to the next level. And if you do that, you're actually like, you'll make, you'll make yourself like, you won't enjoy it, I think. Like if, if you don't feel like, you know, it's not, only, it's not only that the work is impactful, it's like, were it not for like, like we needed to be the people to do this. Like this couldn't have been done by other people. There weren't those people doing it. Like it required Chris Booth, you know? Like it's it's both the the work is important and like it's the it's the right use of Chris Booth. Anyway, there's like some Japanese term, and I I'm not gonna pronounce it because I mispronounce it, but it's apparently like finding purpose at work means you find something that you enjoy doing, you're good at doing it, um, society benefits from you doing it, and society pays you to do it. And like when those four things overlap, that's like your purpose in life. And I was thinking about it because in this commentary, I argue that like, you know. We, we, do can, we do often find like what we like to do in medicine. 
be it research or clinical care, you know, it's all over the place. We do often find what we're good at. Like we're really good at sniffing that out and doing more of it. I think sometimes on the research side, we get pulled to do things we're not good at because we think that that's the, what we should be chasing. But you're very good about that because you're not somebody who you can talk about if you want. You're not somebody who's like just chasing titles. You actually are trying to craft a job that fulfills your purpose. So you're not just trying to get promotions or anything like that. Um, Okay, then what society benefits from, that's something that's, I think, a core mission that both you and I, and I think that's probably why we're such good friends, like, draws us together. And then the last thing is, like, what what you get paid for. And I guess we're lucky that we're, like, researchers who get paid to do this. Um, but I do think that that's something that we can improve. Like, there are lots of things in medicine. Actually, it's probably better in Canada than it is in this country. But in this country, you know, obviously, we pay people for doing special procedures and not for thinking about patients. And that leads to all these kind of errors. And so in the article, I say that, like, we should actually, like, reform the payment and um, we should think about these things explicitly. Anyway, what does that make yeah. you think about? Yeah. No, no, I agree. I mean, I think it's kind of aligning interests to, you know, for greater societal good. But also, I think there's a lot of personal satisfaction that will come from contributing in the ways that 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 the, the Japanese philosophy outline is actually you know quite powerful, and I think that that's probably the holy grail to kind of a fulfilling, meaningful career is finding alignment of those four things. So I think there's probably a lot that we can learn from that. Chris Booth, our time has run short. So how come you not? Uh, how come you dodge this podcast so much? That's my question. Well, I wanted to have something exciting to talk about. You always have something exciting. You know, yeah. you listen to podcasts, the po the whole goal of a podcast, people don't want to hear you saying anything exciting. They just want to hear you saying random mundane things. That's what they crave. That's what they crave. I don't know why. That's what people crave. And even when I listen, that's what I crave sometimes. Yeah, no, no, I know. Well, I guess, yeah, this is my probably my third visit to plenary session. And as you said, you know, I put this on the top of my CV. It's the only title I care about. But, you know, <laughs> it was a plenary session once. And uh, and you got lost yeah, in the woods. If people go back, they'll hear us getting uh, lost, exactly. right? Yeah, I've been lost in Oregon. And then I got to host you in Kingston. And uh, so yeah, lots fun. of fun. But I certainly always enjoy listening to this and uh, a great fan of it. And I think it's actually, you know, serving a really important purpose. Um so yes, I, I, I will not dodge your invitations in the future. I know we have several common projects coming out that will be another opportunity to discuss. But, yes. Uh, yeah, no, thanks for having me, Vinay. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, Chris. And um, and uh, hopefully we, we, we get to meet again. Um, oh, and besides Plenary Session, do you listen to other podcasts? Obviously no, you. Oh, the only one. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, you're the only one. Oh, I'll, give you, um, I'll give you a list. Yeah, soon, yeah. soon plenary session will be off your, when I give you a list of stuff that I listen to, I'm yeah, like, I'll plan, it'll push out plenary session, but you know, it's the gold, it's the golden age of podcasts. Yeah, no, I know. I find, when do you listen to them? When you ride your bike? I would say riding my bike, running. I, I listen on when I run, um, yeah. driving, commuting. Um, and actually sometimes in my office when I do that, like this is maybe, you know, like some epic tasks are very sort of rote. And they're not like cognitive tasks. They're like clicking yeah. this stuff, clicking that stuff. So that's one sometimes I listen to. And then sometimes I like to lay in bed. This is going to sound odd. But like instead of reading a book at night, sometimes I, I just listen instead. What about you? Do you, you, read, I, well, you read books? I, I, read, uh, I read lots of books, a lot of books. That's what I do every night. Um, See, and I, I don't listen to podcasts that much because I just don't have as much time to listen. Um, <laughs> I used to, I will no listen because, you know, if, if I'm riding my bike or driving, I do listen to plenary session. Mm. This is funny story. I was listening to it for a while when I was running and then my wife said, what are you listening to? It's making you run too slow. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now if I listen to anything, I listen to good old rock and roll because Chris monologues were making me jog and not run. <laughs> 
Oh, wow. So I backed yep. off a little I, bit. Uh, but, uh, happy to yeah, take yeah. that. No, no, I, I do enjoy it. I should tell listeners, listeners should know that our podcast host is wearing a lovely sweatshirt right now. Uh-huh. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit what, what you're wearing, Benai? This is, a, this is a fine vintage 2019 garment from Canada. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a classic Roots hoodie. You know, yeah. I, when I was there, I made a beeline for that Roots store. And I got, um, you know, it's just a good, it's just a good sweatshirt. It's just a good company, an all-around good Canadian. Tim Hortons and Roots are like, you you can't go go. wrong. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, future sponsors of Plenary Session. There you go. You know, I I guess I'd say if Roots came to me and they said, you want to be a sponsor, we'll take our first sponsor with Roots. But (laughs) someone tell me it's not going to happen. Well, Chris Booth, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for I. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.